in many ways, this has been kind of a charmed mission. Our crews and our landing went flawlessly. The spacecraft has operated really, really well. Very, very few anomalies. With our seismometer, we're in a way looking at a brand new planet and every discovery we make is groundbreaking because uh, no one's gone there before. Welcome to Small Steps, Giant Leaps, a NASA Apple Knowledge Services podcast where we tap into project experiences to share best practices, lessons learned, and novel ideas. I'm Dina Nunley. NASA's InSight Mars Lander, the first mission dedicated to studying the red planet's deep interior, is gradually losing power and nearing the end of a mission that has achieved all of its primary science goals. The principal investigator for the mission is Bruce Bannard, and he joins us now. Bruce, thank you for taking time to talk with us. Uh, It's my pleasure. Let's start with a quick overview of the Mars InSight mission, what makes it unique, and where we are in the timeline. Well, InSight was the first mission that was conceived to concentrate on on studying the, the deep, deep interior of Mars. So we've got lots of missions that, that look at the geology, that look at the atmosphere, the chemistry of the surface, um, even the, the, the magnetic field and, and, and solar, intera- solar wind interactions. But um, there's never been a mission before that went to Mars to really look down below the surface, sort of scratch the skin and, 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 and delve down all the way down to the center of the planet, to the core. Um, and, and so, I've always felt that this was sort of the remaining big, a big hole in our understanding of Mars. You know, we, we have a lot of information about the geology. We have a lot of information about the history, but the interior is really important in terms of, of really being behind all the geology on the surface, except for impacts, which is, uh, is the one thing from the outside. Um, and it also has a lot of information is what we think of as the fingerprints of the early formation of the planet. And so we wanted to go to Mars and do our first investigation of the deep interior of the planet and kind of fill up that, uh, that last gaping hole in our basic understanding of the planet. Um, as for where we are in the mission right now, we, we landed about four years ago, almost, almost four years to the day. Uh, you know, we landed at the end of November of 2018. Um, we put down our seismometer a, a, a few months later. Um, we tried to put down our heat flow probe, and that was unable to, to, to penetrate uh, down to the depths that we wanted for, for interesting reasons uh, having to do with the, the soil of Mars. Um, but meanwhile, we've been listening with our seismometer. We've been uh, taking uh, data with our weather station and our magnetometer, and we've been tracking the spacecraft with a DSN to, to look at the the, the wobble of the North Pole of Mars for, for four years. And by doing that, we've been able to uh, delineate all the major uh, divisions uh, below the surface of the, of the planet, the, the crust, the mantle, the core, and, and their size, uh, something about their composition, and even something about their temperatures. So at this point, um, we're starting to wind down. Uh, the, the, the dust is covered our solar panels. We're down to a, about less than 10% of uh, the, the uh, efficiency of the panels that we had at the beginning of the mission. Um, we're running our seismometer for about eight hours every third day or so, and then using the, the intervening days to, to you know, try to uh, get some more charge in the batteries. But even, even with that, 
um, the batteries are getting a little bit lower and a little bit lower um, all the time. And uh, um, we feel that uh, sometime in the next, uh, somewhere between a, a few weeks to maybe a month or two, um, we'll probably lose communication with the spacecraft. What are your primary focus areas as the mission winds down? Well, what we're focusing on right now is, is trying to squeeze every bit of science data we can out of, the, out of this uh, last phase of the mission. Um, there's some really good reasons to, to uh, extend the time that we're, that we're taking data, the seismic data. Um, we're just le- leaving right now the, the time of year when the background noise from all this atmospheric activity is covering up our Mars quakes. Our Mars quakes are really small signals, so uh, a little bit of wind, a little bit of atmospheric turbulence uh, can just drown them out. But sometime in November, uh, we expect uh, that noise to kind of collapse based on the the last two Mars years. Uh, And then when that noise collapses, we can get down to the really, really quiet backgrounds that allow us to see these these really small Mars quake signals. So if we can take some more data for the next uh, month or two, um, we can probably pick up, you know, another set of Mars quakes um, that will allow us to refine, you know, our analysis even more. So it's, it's kind of uh, on, a, on a week-by-week basis, we're trying to figure out how we can get just a little bit more data, a little bit more data all the time. Um, and actually, you know, keeps us busy so we don't think too much about, you know, the, the end coming up on us. You're talking about Mars quakes. Could you give us an inside view from the perspective of principal investigator of what you're looking for with Mars quakes and what you've learned through this mission? Well, Mars quakes are really important for the simple reason is they act almost like a, a you can think of them as a flashbulb that, that lights up the, the inside of Mars. So when a, when a Mars quake happens, when you know the, a fault breaks somewhere on Mars and starts shaking the planet, it sets up waves that travel through the planet, like sound waves. And so those sound waves, as they go through the planet, they bounce off of uh, various different layers. They bounce off the, the bottom of the crust, they bounce off the core, and they also get refracted the same way light waves do as they go through uh, different materials. And so they're picking up information as they go through the planet. And when we uh, detect those waves with our seismometer, which is detecting the, the, the motions of the surface that's, uh, that are set up by these waves, um, we can analyze the, the, the shape of those waves and the character of those waves to sort of pull out all this information that, that they've kind of picked up as they traveled through the, the planet. So whenever a Mars quake goes off somewhere, it's, uh, it's like a little flashbulb going, going off and giving us a, a, a little view of another part of the, of the deep part of Mars. So that's really the, the, um, the value of Mars quakes for us. Um, other people actually look at the Mars quakes themselves, what we call the, the source parameters, and look at how you know, the rocks are breaking, how the, the dynamics of that process works. And that tells people about uh, things like um, what the, the, the forces are go- that are, that are uh, set up in the crust, you know, the, the direction and, and, and size of the forces that are, that are squeezing the rocks. And, and that um, helps us understand the geology and, and the geological history of Mars. So there, there's lots of different aspects to the Mars quakes, but for me, they're mostly just big flashbulbs. What do you consider to be the most amazing insight discoveries? Well, there's been so many of them. Um, 
uh, we, we went with some very, very specific goals. Um, you know, when you, when you do a proposal to NASA for, for one of these uh, missions, um, they want you to be really specific. They, they, they don't, they don't select you if you say, we're going to go and, and do a lot of great stuff. Um, NASA requires you to be really uh, precise with your goals. They, they want you to know what you're going to measure, uh, how precisely you're going to measure it, and uh, how, what kind of questions you'll be able to, to answer with that kind of precision. So we actually came up with about 10 different things that we were going to measure on Mars. Things like the thickness of the crust, uh, the size of the core, uh, the density of the core, um, what the distribution of Mars quakes is around Mars, things like that. Um, and so we've actually been able to meet all of those goals. And so that was, I wouldn't say a surprise or, 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 or anything, but uh, it was definitely really gratifying to be able to, to actually you know, make good on all of our, our promises in, in our proposal. But we have uh, discovered some things that, that were really unexpected. Um, when, we, when we got a measurement of the size of the core, for example, we found out that it was quite a bit bigger than we had expected. So we thought it was going to be about... 1,700 kilometers in, in, in radius, um, and actually it's about 1,840. So, you know, 140 kilometers out of, out of, out of 1,800 is not that much, but scientifically, that's a, a pretty big difference. And, and the reason is, is when you have a, a core that's bigger than what we expected, that means its density has to be lower, because we knew what the, the, the total mass was from, from gravity. But So if you have a bigger core, the density goes down, the only way that you make, get the good density to go down is to mix in a bunch of things that are much lighter than iron, things like sulfur and oxygen, um, maybe even hydrogen uh, into the core. So there's a lot more of that in the core than we thought. And right now, we don't know how it could have gotten there. Um, you know, we have theories on how the core is formed and how much, say, sulfur can be dissolved in the material as it's as it's uh, separating and, 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 and uh, raining down to the center of the planet. And right now, most of those theories can only get you about, you know, 12%, maybe it's possibly 15% uh, sulfur in, into the core. But our measurements require at least 15% and maybe even 20% sulfur. So um, that was a big surprise to us because it means there's something wrong with, with our, our theories of core formation. So that was that's kind of a big deal. And, uh, we're still, we're still scratching our heads and, and, uh, pursuing a bunch of ideas on how, how to fix that. Um, the other really surprising thing was, um, something that we just reported on. Um, it was, uh, uh, the observation of some really big craters that were formed on Mars. We actually saw some Mars quakes or they were some of the larger Mars quakes that we've seen during the whole mission, uh, bigger than magnitude four, and we didn't realize it at the time, but those were actually from a pair of uh, meteoroid impacts. So this was only figured out later when uh, MRO took some, uh, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter took some, some photos uh, in the area where um, our epicenters for these uh, Mars quakes were and, and found uh, a pair of large craters, uh, two different locations. Uh, one was about 3,500 kilometers from, from our spacecraft. The other was about 7,500 kilometers from the spacecraft. And these craters were, they're, they're huge by, by the standards of something that happens uh, currently. Um, they're about 150 meters across. So that's about the size of a, of a high school football stadium. Um, and 
we only expected to see uh, a crater that size form every, I don't know, 20 to 40 years. So um, to see one in, is, is really, really lucky. And to see two was actually um, kind of puzzling. We don't know why we would see two within the space of a few months uh, when statistically you uh, wouldn't even expect to see you know one except every few decades. So that was a, a big surprise. And it's a really, really a, a science uh, bonanza for us because when you get a, a signal that is from a known location, that actually simplifies your processing enormously. Um, generally, when we uh, uh, get a Mars quake, we have to figure out where the location is by trying to analyze the waves. And, and that actually makes it harder to uh, figure out other things because there's trade-offs between location and velocity and things like that. But if you know the exact location, then suddenly um, all the other things you'd like to learn from that wave become much more easily uh, uh, accessed and they become much more precise. Plus, we were able to calibrate our location techniques. Normally, on the Earth, you use uh, lots and lots of different seismometers to triangulate the location of, a, of, a, of an earthquake. On Mars, we only have the one seismometer, so we have to use some fairly sophisticated techniques using uh, polarization and, and things like that to, to figure out where the, the Mars quakes are. And there, there's some uncertainty in that. It's not as, as precise a method as we use on the Earth. So we are really uh, uh, grateful to be able to use these uh, impacts to be able to test that, test those techniques and, and actually verify that they're working pretty, pretty well. How has Mars Insight been able to make such impressive discoveries? Well, I mean, honestly, one reason why I was able to make such impressive discoveries is because there were, like I said, there was this big gap in our knowledge. Uh, it's it's easier to make impressive discoveries if no one has looked there before. So we, we looked in a place that no one has uh, has uh, gotten around to looking before. It's almost like going to a new planet. It's, it's like, you know, the surface of Mars is one planet, but once you get down more than, you know, a few kilometers where you you don't have uh, canyons exposing uh, rocks, you don't have, uh, you, you can't access it with uh, ground penetrating radar, um, it's a whole new planet down there that no one's ever seen before. And so with our seismometer, we're in a way looking at a brand new planet and every discovery we make is groundbreaking because uh, no one's gone there before. It's just like, you know, we're, we're, step, we're setting foot on a brand new planet for the first time and making those, those first measurements, uh, just like back in the 70s and 80s when uh, Voyager went past uh, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune for the first time and opened those new worlds up. What did the discoveries about the internal structure of Mars say about the interiors of other rocky planets and exoplanets? Well, the great thing about Mars, first of all, is that it retains a lot of the, the uh, fingerprints of the, of, of the early formation of, of itself. So, you know, the thickness of the crust, uh, the size and, and the, the composition of the core, those are all things that were set up in the first few tens of millions of years of, of Mars's uh, formation. Um, we don't really have that information from the Earth. Uh, it's mostly been destroyed by plate tectonics, by a really vigorously convecting mantle. And so um, we have models of planetary formation that are based on uh, what we do know about the Earth. Uh, it's based on 
things that we've been able to deduce from about the moon from uh, return samples and from seismic measurements on the moon. Um, but the moon is a very different kind of a, of a place. It's a really small planet. If you go all the way to the, to the center of the moon, uh, the pressures and temperatures are uh, equivalent to something maybe 150 kilometers deep on the Earth. So you really don't get the kinds of pressure and temperature conditions that uh, most planets undergo as, as they're formed. Mars is a really good laboratory that way because it's big enough to uh, have those kinds of conditions on the inside, but it's small enough that it hasn't uh, gotten so carried away like the Earth did to, to destroy all that stuff. So um, as the theoreticians sort of uh, in, uh, bring in the, the data that we have on Mars and start to test their models of formation using what we now know about um, the structure of Mars, um, they can then start to extrapolate that better to other planets instead of just having, you know, one, one data point for the Earth and another data point for, for the Moon. Uh, we now have a data point uh, for Mars that, that allows them to, to better, you know, fine-tune these models of uh, planetary formation and differentiation. Bruce, what are significant challenges you and the team have faced with this mission? Well, we've actually been really lucky. In many ways, this has been kind of a charmed mission. Our crews and our landing went flawlessly. The spacecraft has operated really, really well. Very, very few anomalies. Um, our biggest challenge, I guess, was the mole. Um, you know, we had uh, this, this mole that was supposed to uh, hammer itself down into the, to the Martian crust, uh, into the Martian soil. Um, we were trying to go down three meters, five meters. Uh, to get down into the soil. And uh, we were going to be able to measure the heat flow from the planet by looking at the very small uh, temperature gradient from five meters down back up to the surface. Um, when we first tried to penetrate into the, the soil, it went down about um, 20 centimeters or so and then stopped. Um, and we, we didn't know why, so we started... Uh, trying to figure out why, trying to figure out how we could help it get down. And we spent about a year and a half on various different um, methods and, and, and techniques trying to help the mole get down. Um, we pulled the, the sort of the support structure off of it. Um, we used our robotic arm to, to first press on it sideways to give it a little bit of, of friction. Uh, we eventually uh, brought the... Uh, the scoop down on the end of the mole carefully and, and to, to keep it from uh, bouncing out. Um, but in, in the end, we were only able to get it to, to go down as far as, uh, say, the back of the mole, kind of flush with the, the surface of the, of the soil. Um, that was a, a really intense and, and, and difficult campaign. Uh, we did things with the robotic arm that we had never planned to do, that we'd never tested on Earth previously. Um, we never expected to actually use the arm to do anything except to um, place the, the instruments on the ground. So we had a, a grapple that, that picked them up and then, then let go of them once we had them on the ground. Um, but we ended up uh, uh, scooping the soil around. We ended up pushing on the mole as it hammered, uh, doing all kinds of things that uh, the, the arm was never, never designed to do and that we had not intended to do. But um, uh, the, the team came up with lots and lots of of clever and, and really creative ways to, uh, to, to try to, to help things out. But in the end, uh, and Mars sort of uh, uh, won in the, in the sense that uh, we weren't able to get the mold to go, go any further into the soil than, than we were. 
so that was that was our biggest challenge. Um, we really spent a long time doing something that was never planned and and that uh, we really hadn't anticipated. And I think uh, we learned a lot from that, both in terms of uh, the reasons why you know the the mole failed to, to penetrate, and also learned a lot about the properties of the of the Martian soil. So. Um, there was definitely a silver lining to that, but it was a it was a, a big disappointment, and uh, that was uh, that, that was probably the the, the, the saddest part of, of the mission. Aside from that disappointment, has this mission exceeded your expectations? Um, yeah, it really has, and I and, and I think that's saying a lot because I have a. I have a pretty active imagination. I, I had imagined a, a, a pretty, pretty fantastic mission. I think, you know, the only place where, you know, we really, uh, it really hasn't exceeded what, what, what I, what I had expected is, is a lifetime. I'd hoped that, you know, we would have wind coming along and blowing off the dust from the solar panels. And, you know, maybe we'd be, you know, taking measurements for, you know, 10 years, a dozen years or so. Um, uh, looks like that's not going to be, but meanwhile, we already we have more than 1300 quakes and and i was hoping to get you know maybe a few hundred quakes um our weather station has turned out to be a, a really fantastic scientific uh, asset you know we, we we have probably the the most detailed and and continuous uh year of, of weather data anywhere that, that anyone's ever done on mars i think that's going to be really really valuable for uh planners in the future both for uh uh, other landers and, and for human exploration. Um, seeing these craters as they actually formed, um, I was skeptical that we would ever see a, a signal from a, from a meteorite, although I knew it was definitely possible. And we've seen you know, over a half a dozen so far. So um, it's, it's really exceeded my expectations in, in almost every way. Uh, the, the, like I said, it would have been nice if it would last longer. Um, it's already lasted twice as long as, as our, our planned prime mission, so I really shouldn't complain. Um, and, of course, the mole was a disappointment, but um, uh, I think, you know, the, the other signs that we've gotten from, from inside has, has more than made up for that. What happens when the mission comes to an end? Well, um, first of all, we're going to make sure that all of the data is, uh, is processed and, and archived in publicly available uh, places. We're putting all of our data into the planetary data system, the PDS, um, which is available to scientists, not only in the United States, but, but all over the world. Uh, and in addition, our seismic data is, um, is being placed on uh, a site called IRIS, which is sort of the uh, international clearinghouse for seismic data all over the world. So um, basically every Every seismometer in the world, uh, except for uh, a, a few proprietary ones, uh, they place their data on the, this IRIS site, and it's in a sort of a, a common format. So anybody who does terrestrial seismology will be able to uh, just put in the, the station code for our InSight seismometer, download the data just like they would from a seismometer in Southern California or Alaska or Japan, and uh, analyze it. So what we believe and what we, we think is clear is that this data is going to be a, a resource, you know, for, for decades to come. And uh, I know our team has been, you know, analyzing this data like crazy, but we've just, we feel like we've just uh, scratched the, the surface of its potential. Um, so, so we want to make sure that that data is 
all available, that all the information is there for, for people to use. And, you know, if uh, someone comes back uh, 10 years later, they don't have to call me up and see if I can remember what, you know, what some of the parameters were, you know, where we want to make sure that, you know, all the information is, is set up on that archive. Um, in terms of, of uh, Mars seismology, this is probably the last uh, seismic mission to Mars for, for quite a while. There's um, a lot of interest in doing more seismology. You know, one, one single seismometer can, can only do so much. You know, we, we've been able to make, you know, these amazing discoveries because it's sort of seismologically speaking, it's kind of the low-hanging fruit, right? Um, but if we had multiple seismometers on Mars, we could start doing the kind of seismic analysis that people do on the Earth and looking at a lot of the details of, you know, what's going on in, in, in the mantle, what's going on underneath some of the, the, the geological structures on, on Mars, and really understanding, you know, you know, what causes those huge volcanoes, what causes that giant uh, rifts like Metavallis Marineris. Um, we've got lots of theories about that. Um, seismic information is really the best way to start actually, you know, getting at, you know, which of those theories is closest to reality. So uh, a seismic network on Mars, you know, multiple seismometers is, is really, you know, what, what we'd like to see eventually. And, and maybe a few decades uh, from now, you know, after sample return is behind us or when uh, they start, you know, really uh, looking at sending humans to Mars, you know, when that kind of, uh, uh, efforts underway, I think, you know, maybe we will be able to slip a few more seismometers in there. But meanwhile, there's lots of other targets in the solar system that are, you know, just, just begging for seismometers. Um, there's actually a seismometer uh, scheduled to be flown on the Dragonfly mission to, uh, to Titan. Uh, you know, Dragonfly is a, a helicopter, which is not the greatest place for a seismometer to, to be. <laughs> But it does land, and it and it stays on the on the ground for extended periods of time, uh, recharging its batteries. And during that time, the seismometer will be uh, listening for, you know, uh, Titan quakes, and uh, you know, I, I, and looking at the, uh, the sort of the seismic noise, the, which can actually tell you uh, quite a bit about a planet all by itself. Um, there's a seismometer being readied right now to fly to the far side of the moon for the first time. You know, the Apollo missions uh, back in the 70s put four seismometers on the moon and got a lot of really, really valuable um, seismic information about the deep structure of the moon. But all the, of the, uh, the Apollo landers were pretty close to the sub-Earth point, uh, really just sort of centered on the Earth-facing side of the moon. And so um, this uh, seismometer, which is called the Far Side Seismic Suite, is going to be uh, landed with a commercial lander on the far side of the moon in, in a couple of years. Um, and it actually uses the, what, the flight spare of the InSight seismometer modified for uh, lunar gravity. So we'll be getting some, some planetary seismic data pretty soon, uh, but not from Mars. You know, we're getting to the, to the end of the mission, and you know, probably in the next month or two, we'll lose contact with the lander. But... I don't really like to, to, to think of it as, you know, the lander dying on Mars. Um, I like to think of it as going into retirement. You know, it's, it's done everything that we've asked it to do. Um, it's never complained, had almost no technical problems with it. Very, very trouble-free spacecraft. And when we get to the point where the, there's not enough uh, solar energy to run the computer, 
Um, our spacecraft actually goes into uh, a, a mode we call dead bus mode. And what happens is it turns off all the electronics on the spacecraft except for the circuits that charge the batteries. And so if sometime in the future, uh, a big gust of wind comes along or a dust devil or something like that and would clean off the solar panels, it'll actually charge the batteries up again and the, the spacecraft will wake up and start um, sending signals back to Earth. And we have a, a campaign in place uh, to actually watch for those signals. We can actually just kind of listen to them on the sidebands of other Mars communications. And so it's quite possible that sometime a year from now, two years from now, maybe even longer, that Insight might decide that, you know, retirement's too boring and come come back out of retirement and decide to do some more work for us. And that's pretty unlikely. I, I put the, the uh, likelihood down in the less than 10% category, but that's not, it's not like buying a lottery ticket. It's a lot more likely than that. So I like to think of it as just uh, resting on Mars and trying to decide whether it wants to go back to work again. That's so fascinating. Bruce, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Oh, it's really been my pleasure. I, I really love this mission. I've been living with uh, it in some form for the last 10 years, and uh, I'm really going to miss it when it's gone. Bruce's bio, links to topics discussed during our conversation, and a show transcript are available on our website at apple.nasa.gov podcast. If you like the podcast, please follow us on your favorite podcast app and share the episode with your friends and colleagues. As always, thanks for listening to Small Steps, Giant Leaps.